Thank you all. Beautiful as always. The lesson for this Sunday that uh, many of you will be studying, a portion of it is in the second chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus' experience in the temple when his uh, mother and Joseph, his earthly father, came back to find him. And he was in the temple. And his response to them, when they were naturally distressed over uh, being separated from him, and because they thought that uh, he was in the group and uh, they traveled for a day and found out that he wasn't along, because they traveled as a group coming down from Nazareth. Uh, it would be a, probably hundreds of people coming together for the safety and also for the provision of food. And they didn't have hotels like uh, we have today. They didn't have places to stay like that. It was much more difficult travel. They were, of course, walking, maybe a few on donkeys. But uh, they began, Jesus' mother and father, Joseph, began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Don't you know they were frightened? How many of you have ever lost a child temporarily? I mean, a store somewhere or something. You did. That is frightening. It, it, that's sheer terror, isn't it? It is sheer terror. Uh, it, Martha had an experience with that. We had it with uh, Mike and with Steve. Left, left Steve at a church in London at 1 o'clock in the morning. That's right. We stopped. We'd been singing, been to a service, and we stopped by... Well, the great Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Spurgeon had preached for so many years, and they were just closing it up. And I said, I want to see that. And all everybody on the bus was just about asleep, and we stopped, and I got off, and Roy Yarbrough got off with me, and Charlie Hamill. We ran up the steps to go in there and just kind of look at it for a few moments. I didn't realize that Steve got off and came along too. We got in there, and I got to looking around, and we were in a hurry. And I even talked to him, but didn't see him. I, it, it, isn't that terrible? He's standing there. I said, Steve, there's a picture of Charlie. I went through the whole bit. We said, okay, it's time to go. And we ran back out, and we jumped on the bus, and we started toward the hotel. And this is over on the west end of London. This is not your nicest, easiest part of town to find your way around. How old were you, Steve? Eleven years old. And um, anyway, make a long story short, Got on the bus, we were going, it was foggy, and we came past Parliament and Big Ben, and I said, Steve, look at, look at Big Ben in the fog. Wouldn't that make a great picture? Steve, look at Big Ben in the fog. Wouldn't that make a great picture? And he was not on that bus. We had left. I told the bus driver, I said, let me off. I'm going to run back. Let me off. He said, no, I can get you back quicker than you can run back there. So he whipped that bus around and we went back and the church was dark and there wasn't anybody around and the police station about half a block away and I ran down there and I asked and Martha was ill. She was at the hotel. <laughs> a couple came up and said, are you looking for a little boy? And I said, we surely are. And they said, marvelous, delightful couple. I said, well, we could tell he was lost. We saw him chase the bus for about two blocks. <laughs> 
That's right. And he tried to get on a bus, and they said, we don't go anywhere near where your hotel is. He knew where we were staying, and these people put him in a cab and sent them to the New Langham Hotel. And uh, he got there before we did because we'd gone back to look. I nearly got hit by a car jumping off the bus to run across the street. I looked the wrong way. You know, you can do that a lot. I'm serious. I, I'm close to getting wiped out. Ran in there, and Steve had gotten there and just dissolved in tears and frustration. And Martha was, Martha was not happy with me. Uh, mm. And we were trying to make a positive point out of it, and Martha said, well, Steve, we calmed down, we talked, and everything began to get okay. And Martha said, now, Steve, do you realize that that church where the great preacher preached for over 40 years and thousands of people became Christians and they were saved? And Steve, in his typical perceptive way, said, a lot of people were saved there. That's where I got lost. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that suggests a, a sermon if you ever want to preach it sometime. Well, how many people do come to church and get overlooked? How many people come to church and because they're maybe little or they're not impressive, they get lost in the shuffle? I think of that in relation to our church. We have a lot of people here young people, older people. This surely ought not to be the place where people get overlooked and left. It needs to be the place where people are found. Well, Mary and Joseph went back looking for Jesus. And they found him. Found him in the temple. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. Does it stir your imagination at all of what Jesus did during those three days? who he stayed with, 12 years of age. Some of these teachers of the law probably took him home with them. It, it took a lot of self-confidence on his part to handle that. They found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. I think that's probably a very polite word for what they really felt. <laughs> they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? That's a very normal question for any mother, and that's particularly normal for a Jewish mother. Why are you doing this to me? We were searching. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I think that was a very tender but nonetheless positive reminder of who he really was and who his father really was. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It says here in a very dedicated home, a very consecrated home, there can be some conflicts. There's a possibility to get out of touch with each other. Through no one's overt or conscious fault, it can happen. It can happen because some people are younger than others in the home. Some people have different roles in the home, different ages. Never dawned on me, I heard David Edens one time make the statement, by the way, David and Virginia are coming back in October for a weekend of family life emphasis. What a great time that will be. Those of you who know David and Virginia who were here when they were, when David was our minister of counseling for over 10 years, you know what incredible people they are. And those of you who haven't met them or haven't known them, you have a real treat in store for you. But they'll be back in October. But I remember David making the statement. He said, you know, none of us is, is born into the same home. The first child is born into a family of two. Next child is born into a family of three. It's different. The next child is born into a family of four. Lisa was born into a family of four people. At her age and size, looking up to them, they were all adults. Different than Michael and Stephen. You have different people that come into your life early and at a very substantive, personal, emotional level. So it's different. And it's interesting to notice that even in the home of Jesus that you have these tensions. Mary knew who he was. The announcement had come for the angel of God, and she knew that he was born of the Spirit of God, that she was a virgin. And here there is some polite tension between them. It goes on. Probably early in Jesus' uh, life, maybe when he was a teenager, Joseph died and Jesus became the head of that family. Chief breadwinner, younger brothers and sisters. There seemed to be some misunderstanding going on even then. When Jesus was ministering after leaving home at 30 years of age to begin his ministry, as Howard Hubdy pointed out in the session we had with the deacons that Sunday, uh, Saturday morning, and such a marvelous session it was. Uh, I wonder if there was some resentment uh, toward Jesus for leaving home when he may have been the number one man in the business. Other members of the family maybe had some resentment against him going off with this group of fishermen and tax collectors and people that they were not so sure about in terms of religion and reputation and going around preaching and incurring the hostility and wrath of uh, some of the religious leaders of the land, some people that they had grown up res to respect and to revere, and here he was 
They weren't agreeing with him. It created some tensions in that home. They thought he'd, they thought he'd just flipped. No, nobody in their right mind would do that, so they came to get him. You remember that? They came to take him home. Is it, is it not interesting that on the cross when Jesus was dying, he entrusted his mother not to his brothers but to John? He had younger brothers. But he said to Mary and to John standing there, Behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And the, and the scripture says, And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. There was tension in that family. So you've made a great step towards some health if we recognize that tension is normal in family life. People growing up together, people living together, people that sit around and wait for the idyllic relationship to exist where everything is going to be perfect 24 hours a day for the next 30 years. They're dreamers. And the tragedy of their dreaming is they miss the great blessing of working through some of those relationships to the point where you really do come to know someone at a deeper level than you would ever have known them in some sort of idyllic perfect Camelot environment. And you learn something about yourself in that process of giving and taking, of forgiving and understanding. Think about that home. His own brothers, his own family members didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. And then they're recorded in the book of Acts as being followers after the resurrection, but it was the resurrection that convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah. The point is there was some tension. It was family, home life. So what I want to talk about for just a few moments in that connection as I've been thinking about this subject, I, the Lord willing, I plan to preach on it this Sunday on that great hymn of love in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It, isn't it interesting that Paul is so often looked upon as, uh, by some people as the theologian, the one whose emphasis in the book of Romans particularly is so organized and so developed and this genius mind of his, so incredible in the organization of eternal truth. And he is looked upon as the great apostle of faith. Faith. And in our minds, we think of John as being the disciple of more of compassion and of love, and one who seemed to be closer to Jesus in an emotional way. And yet, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote the greatest thing ever written, the greatest statement ever made about love in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And he puts it in its proper perspective when he says, 
And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is primary, but love is preeminent. And in that passage of Scripture, he says, you can have all faith. You can have as much faith as he had. You can have enough faith to move mountains. But if you don't have love, your faith counts for nothing. You can have knowledge. You can make sacrifices. You can even give your body to be burned. But if you don't love, all you get is a zero. It amounts to nothing. He doesn't say it amounts to a little bit. He said it amounts to nothing. Nothing. It's like adding up a column of zeros. You're not going to get anything till you put something in front of one of those zeros. And that's true with the Christian life. You can add up all the works you do and all the money you give and all the prophecy, all the preaching that we do, and all the miracles performed. It's nothing without love. And the corollary of unconditional love, and, and it gets kind of sticky here because, you, you know, Paul, and I don't mean to preach Sunday's sermon, but I may be preaching a little of it. Um, Paul does not define love. That's really impossible to define love. The kind of love he's talking about cannot be defined. It was personified in Jesus. It was epitomized in Jesus. That's the only place you really get a definition of love. In the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you do not get a definition of love. What Paul tells us there is how love acts. He tells us there how love behaves, how it relates. And the corollary of, an uncondition, of unconditional love is unconditional forgiveness. And the water begins to hit the wheel, and the rubber begins to hit the road, and the truth begins to hit our hearts when you get to that. In the third chapter of Philippians, Paul wrote, you've heard this so many times, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We'll talk for just a minute about forgiveness as the corollary of love. As the other side of the coin of love, forgiveness, and apply it to your home, to my home, to our relationships, to us here in the church. And you know, when, when you and I forgive someone, I, I kind of grew up on the idea that when you forgive somebody, you're doing them a favor. That's not so. When you forgive somebody, you're not doing a favor to others. You're doing a favor to yourself. 
best thing you can do for your spirit and your mental health and your happiness and your joy is to forgive other people. Because you carry a grudge, it doesn't hurt the other person. You can say what you want to, think what you want to, wish what you want to, pray what you want to. It doesn't hurt them. It hurts you. If you want to be just very pragmatic about it, if you want to look at it solely from the standpoint of mental health, leaving God and Christ and forgiveness and His Spirit and everything else out of it, the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to forgive other people. You sleep better at night. You cut out on Tums and Rolaids. Fingernails will grow. To forgive is to do something for yourself. My goodness, you, you've read, uh, don't, uh, don't we all read a, a lot more in the last few years about the relationship between our spirits and our bodies and the effect upon our bodies of a corroded spirit, of a jealous spirit, an envious spirit, an unforgiving spirit? When we forgive other people, because of the love of God in our hearts and in our lives. And I, I think that's the only way you can genuinely begin to forgive somebody else. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. First point I want to make is you do a favor for yourself and not to others. I've got to move on quickly. And the next thing is to forget. Paul talked about forgetting those things which are behind. You know, we all say, man, I forgive, but I will never forget. Well, God being the epitome of love, he forgets. Love can forget. The Christ kind of love in our hearts and in our minds can help us to forget because God says he remembers our sin against us no more. Did you hear that? He remembers our sin against us no more. And someday when I meet the Lord and I remind him of some things that have happened in my life and in my relationship to him, he's going to say, what things? I do not know what you're talking about. You're forgiven. And with God, to forgive is to forget. One, one way, just a couple little hints. First of all, we need to accept the fact that it's, it's medically provable that unresolved anger and a refusal to forgive others is a terrible threat to your health. And so I need to ask God to help me to develop some spiritual vaccines that will take care of my spirit, that will affect my body, my relationship to myself and to others, my attitudes. One of the things to do is just sort of close your mind to some of those things when they start coming. You can do that. It takes practice. I'm working at it. I guess we all are in varying degrees. But you can close your mind to some things. You can say, I refuse to recall that. I refuse to recall it. I refuse to let it come in and dwell inside of me. I can't keep people from knocking at my door, but I can't stop inviting them in. 
And I cannot keep some of these reminders of the past from coming back and knocking at my door, wanting to come in to depress me and upset me and get me angry or get me upset at somebody else. I cannot keep them from coming and knocking at my door, but I can say, hit the road. And I say this in all respect, you can say to those ideas and to those intrusions which are satanic in origin, when they come to depress you and to upset you and to remind you that you need to carry a grudge and be upset and be unforgiving, you can say to that tempter and to those ideas, go to hell. Because that's where you came from and that's where you belong. Get out of my life. Go to hell. Try it. Don't say it out loud, but try it. <laughs> At the office tomorrow, you might have trouble if you start saying that. People might think you're talking to them. You remember the model prayer our Lord taught us? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive others who also trespass against us. Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you yours. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. What's, what does that mean? Does that mean he's sitting up there kind of doing some bookkeeping and saying, okay, Bugner forgave this guy for saying that or doing that, so now I'm going to forgive him for a couple of little sins and I'm going to keep, keep books on him. No, no. I think what the Lord is saying here, there is as long as you're concentrating upon what other people have done to you or what other people have said to you or how other people have hurt you, you are never going to come to terms with your own problems and your relationship and your confession to God. As long as you've got your eye on somebody else, you're not going to see your own needs and you're going to be unable to accept forgiveness even when it's given because your mind's on somebody else. Now, Jesus is saying the same thing when he's talking about, you know, get that beam out of your own eye and it'll begin to clear up the way you look at things. Quit talking about your brother. Quit worrying about what they've done or said, how untrue it is. Forget it. When I got to thinking about this, I thought that the first thing to do and I'd like you to think about this. I don't have any answer to it. I'm just uh, turning it over in my own mind. But my first thought was that if I forgive somebody something they have said or they've done to me and I say to them, I forgive you, or that I have forgiven them in my heart, my first thought was, and I have read people as I've studied on this some, particularly in the last couple of weeks, people who say, you ought to go to that person and say, I forgive you. The more I've thought about that, I'm not so sure that may, that may be the way for you to do it. it. May be the way for me to do it. But I don't feel comfortable doing that. And theor Theologically, spiritually, if I have really forgiven them, I've even forgotten what they did to me. If I've really forgiven them, I don't even remember it to tell them I've forgiven. 
at least in the way I'm looking at it for myself, I think there's something a little self-serving and crown polishing in going to someone and saying to them, I have forgiven you. Because I want to tell you something, I cannot forgive anybody without Jesus Christ in my heart and in my life. And the credit for the forgiveness doesn't go to me because I can't do it. The credit for the forgiveness that is there, to whatever degree it is there, goes to the Lord. And so, if the Lord wants that person to know it, His Spirit can communicate that to them. I think there's a difference in being willing to say, I'm sorry for what I did. That's different than saying, I forgive you. But if someone says to you, I'm sorry, you and I ought to be able to say, with the help of God's Spirit, forget it. It's gone. It's buried in the depths of the sea. Wouldn't that do something for home life? Wouldn't that be something in church? Maybe if all of us who are Christians, and I'm talking about every denomination and every shade and type and kind of Christian, if we practice that kind of relationship with each other, it'd be the greatest stroke for world evangelization ever struck by God. For the world would say of us what they said of the first century Christians. Look how they love each other. That's what changed the Roman world. Their love. That's what will change ours. Let's pray together. Father, teach us. And no, Lord, don't just teach us facts. We've got more facts than we've applied. Teach us, Lord, how to live it and share it. Help us, Lord, not just to know something, but to be something. For Jesus' sake, amen.